We are going to be in Exodus chapter 13 today. We're going to finish Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus 13. And we're going to read the whole text. So you guys please stand as we hear God's Word for God's people. The Word of the Lord. Starting in 12 verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, concentrate, uh, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is mine first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both men and the beast is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by the strong hand of the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten today. In the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you in the land of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this very month. Seven days you shall eat of unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, nor leaven shall be seen in, with you in all your territory. You shall tell your sons of this day. It is because of what the Lord has done for me when I came out of Egypt. And it is to be to you as a sign on your hands and a memorial between your eyes. And the law of the Lord may be on your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. And you shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. Verse 11, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as He swore to you in your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart of the Lord all the opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals and the males shall be to the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb or if you are not redeemed, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man shall your sons shall, you shall redeem. And when in time to come to your sons, ask, what does this mean? You shall, tell the, you shall say to him, by the strong hand of the Lord, he has brought us up out of Egypt from house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of men and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that opened, first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeemed. And that shall be a mark on your hands and frontals between your eyes. For by the strong hand of the Lord, he brought us out of Egypt. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest these people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the sea. And the people of Israel went up from the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Verse 19, when Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And when they moved from the Succoth to the encamped in Itham on the edge of the wilderness, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire and gave to them light that they might travel day and by night, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of of fire by night. And the Lord did not depart from them, from His people. God's Word from God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this great story. 
Lord, we see a, a lot of themes in here which we will cover, but the one that kind of struck me the most as I was studying this was Your presence. Your presence is with Your people. Your presence was with Your people back then when You led them by a, uh, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And today, uh, we have Your presence through the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And each and every day, You lead, guide, and direct us. What a thought. So Lord, just lead, guide, and direct us as we look at this chapter in Exodus chapter 13. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> well, we know that throughout history, there have been some epic events. And, and, and we remind ourselves of these epic events that, that, that really changed the face of history, that their influence still ripples through, whether it's something like 9-11. We, we, we celebrate 9-11 every year on 9-11. Uh, something like uh, um, Pearl Harbor, December 7th. That was a day that, that struck at the core of America. So we, we set aside December 7th remembering Pearl Harbor. And, and, and not only do Americans do that, but, but everyone does that. And we see that Israel... Last week, and, and we'll see it carries on, they, they do that as well. They celebrate these great events. And the greatest event that probably happened in Israel's history was what Rich talked about last week. The, the, the Passover leading to the Exodus. And this year, thousands of years, some say we're 3,000 years plus removed from that event when it happened. They have celebrated every single year since then. And they will celebrate it again this year. They will celebrate the Passover event, Israel and Jews, from March 27th through April 4th. Through April 4th. These are, these are great events. And this morning, we're looking at Exodus 13. Now this is a chapter that kind of tends to get forgotten because it's sandwiched in between two of the greatest events in Israel's history. It's, it's sandwiched between Exodus 12 and the Passover and then Exodus 14, which we'll look at next week, is when they exodus through the Red Sea. And in between, we have this little chapter, Exodus 13. But, but the Lord has it here for a purpose, for us to remember some great truths. Some great truths. And, and we're going to be reminded this morning of how relevant this chapter is for us this morning. And really for us as Christians, one on the other side of the cross and that looks at this chapter through the lens of Jesus Christ and fuller revelation than the Jews have, we have a clearer understanding, a better understanding of the significance of chapter 13. And you're going to see how us in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, how these principles apply to us today. So let's remember, let's look at Exodus 13 and see how it still impacts us today. Some 3,000 plus years later. How relevant. First, the first heading is, let me remind you of the Passover again. Let me remind you of the Passover again. Exodus 12, 43 through 50. We see in Exodus 12, 43, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statutes of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought on for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. And it goes on to give you a greater list of who can take it and how they can take it. And we see here that the Lord is reminding Moses to remind the people about the, the intensity and the, and the um, gravity of the Passover and who can take the Passover and who cannot take the Passover. 
And they are leaving, as they are leaving from Egypt and going into the promised land. Now, why is this so significant? I mean, we just heard Moses talk to, talk to the people of Israel about this the day before, basically. The last chapter. Why all of a sudden is he already reminding the people of Israel again of what he just told them yesterday? Well, that goes to Exodus chapter 12, verse 38. Because there's more than just Jews who are leaving Egypt. It says that there is a mixed multitude. And so there's some Egyptians, some other Gentiles outside of Israel, outside of the Jewish nation, that are going along with them. And Moses wants them to understand how they worship. To, to lead them, to disciple them in the way they celebrate the Passover. That the Passover is not just for Jews in Israel, but some Gentiles as well. And again, there's two to three million people that are being led out by Moses. That's why he's reminding them of the Passover and who can take it and who can not take it. Now, just a little side note. This is an incredible and a beautiful truth of God's goodness to us, to you and me. Because we would be considered Gentiles. Unless you're 100% Jewish, there's two groups in the Scripture. There's Jewish Israel, and then everyone else is, is Gentile or pagan. And I'm a, I'm a mutt, I'm an Italian, Irish, Scottish, English guy, right? So I'm not Jewish. But ever, even back then when the Lord was leading him out, his salvation was more than just for Israel and Jews, but it was for the whole world. For John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe, whoever would believe throughout the whole world would be saved and inherit eternal life. So don't let that just pass over. Don't think that because we're in America. This was way back when God had you and me in mind. Those outside the nation of Israel because He is the Savior of the world. Now, for some of these that left, these Egyptians and other pagans, other groups, I'm sure by some of them were like, man, I'm getting out of Dodge with Israel because, you know, I don't want to live, I want to live a plague-free life, right? I mean, I want to live a plague-free life. They're, they're pragmatic, right? They, they understand like, man, I don't believe in Yahweh, but you know what? I don't want, I want to drink clean water. I don't want to deal with the, you know, the bloody water of the Nile. I, I don't want to be handled with fro frogs or lice or, or hail, or boils, or any of that stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopping on this train. And there's some of them that probably did that for pragmatic reasons. But there's also Egyptians and others that did see the power, that did see the glory, that did now understand who this Hebrew God was, this, this God, Yahweh, who is the God of gods, as He up, upturned, upside down, the whole system, worship system of Egypt. And they're like, I believe. I want to follow that God. And so therefore, God, uh, Moses reminds them on who can and who cannot take the Passover. And also, this is bringing up this, the Lord. And look at verse 49. Uh, Moses is making this point clear that we see also in the Old Testament. There's one Lord, one faith, and one way to worship. In verse 49, he says, there is only one law for natives, that's Israel, and for strangers to follow. And that's the pagans, the Egyptians. And those who are the covenant can participate in the Passover and receive the blessing of being a part of the covenant people. But again, what was the sign? What was the sign of the old covenant? What was the sign in particular for males? The sign was that of what? What was the physical sign? The males had to be circumcised. That's right. And we see that uh, Moses points it out in verse 44 and twice in 48. In fact, he says you, you must be circumcised to take the Passover. And if you, weren't, if you were not circumcised and if you did take the Passover then things wouldn't end up too well for you. 
You guys remember how seriously God takes this covenant and this covenant sign, the sign of circumcision? Remember Exodus chapter 4 when he called Moses out? Moses was going to be his man. He called him out. But what did Moses forget to do or just disobey and didn't do? He didn't circumcise his children, right? His male children. And the Lord took it so seriously that he says, Moses, I've called you out to lead my people, but since you've disobeyed me, I'm going to kill you now. You guys remember that, right? And thank the Lord for who? Who? Zipporah, right? His wife. Because his wife saw or, or put two and two together and saw and, and circumcised the kids and then helped spare Moses' life. So, so the Lord takes his signs of the covenant very seriously. Now, praise the Lord, we're not under the old covenant. We live in the new covenant in the New Testament because of Christ. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. And now we live in the new, to, the new Testament, the new covenant. And the sign of the new covenant is what? Baptism. The physical sign of the new covenant is that of baptism. So baptism, if you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Him, one of the first things that you should do is be baptized. Because that is the sign of the covenant. That is the, the physical sign that obviously doesn't save you. Only Christ, His life, death, and resurrection saves you. But this is now a, a, an outward symbol of something that's happened inward into you, inwardly in you. It's a physical sign that you have been, you died and you've been buried with Christ when you go under the water. And then when you raise up, you're raised in newness of life. So if you haven't been baptized yet as a believer, but you've confessed your sin, the Scripture tells us to do that sooner rather than later because the Lord takes His covenant promises seriously. I praise the Lord that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't, you know, deal with us as He did in the Old Testament because He deals with us now through Christ, but it's still serious to Him. So, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior and you haven't been baptized, you need to do that sooner rather than later. We see that is the way that has happened in Acts. Remember Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Philip shares the gospel with this pagan, this Gentile. And, and he receives the gospel. The eunuch receives it. And, he's, and they're going by some water. And he looks at the water and says, hey, what's preventing me from being baptized? Nothing. To do it immediately. So just let me encourage you right now. We have a couple more baptisms coming up. So if this is you, please come see us and we will add you to this. Now, look how uh, Moses ends chapter 12. Verse 50. And this is awesome. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And verse 51, you should highlight this, star this, underline it, highlight this, because this is the Exodus. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Verse 51 is the verse that changed the trajectory of all of Israel. A new calendar was begun, as Rich pointed out last week, for the nation of Israel because to mark this event. This is the central event on their calendar. This is the Exodus. This is what Israel has been waiting for for over 400 plus years to be redeemed from Egypt as they were enslaved in bondage. This is a massive, massive day. On that very day the Lord redeemed Israel. On that very day, one points out this, on that very day, into late in the night and that morning, death came at night. And those that had and sacrificed the Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and on the lentils, death 
passed over them. They were saved. But those that didn't, they lost their firstborn children and animals. On that very day, Pharaoh's heart was so hard, yet he submitted to Yahweh. He finally humbled himself and let the people of Israel go. On that very day, all the people of, the, of Israel obeyed the Lord. On that very day, Israel left as free people. Men, women, and children left as free people. No longer slaves and servants to Egypt, but now slaves to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a day of history that was. And again, when we started this, we, we, we teach here the Bible is one big story and the, the Old Testament connects to the New Testament. When I opened up Exodus, I said, every one of us has a creation story. We're all born physically. But if we want to be saved, if we want to inherit eternal life, we all must also have what? An Exodus story. We all must be redeemed, not physically from Egypt, but we must be redeemed from the slavery of sin. That's what captures us. That's what keeps us in bondage. Anyone outside of Christ who's not in Christ is a slave and in bondage to sin. And again, when we look at Jesus as our Passover lamb, as Moses said when Jesus came, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When we put our faith and trust in Him, we now become slave, we come from slaves of sin to now slaves of righteousness. We are free now to, to live life as it was to be lived. First and foremost as worshipers of God and then to go out and subdue creation. On that very day, when you and I were exodus through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we were saved from death. When death comes for us, not physically, but spiritual death comes for us, we are now, we have crossed over from death to life. On that very day that we were exodus from our sin, our hearts were humbled, and now we are freely to go and worship God freely. On that very day, He has given us the Holy Spirit to be led and guided and directed now that we can obey all the good and gracious commands of God so that we may enjoy life to its fullest. Because in Christ there is fullness of life and abundant living. And on that very day, we know one day that we will enter into heaven to eternity with Him. The Exodus story. Do you have an Exodus story this morning. We all have a creation story, but do you have an Exodus story? This was a massive day in Israel's history. It's even a bigger day in our history. Do you have an Exodus story? That leads us to the second point. Let me remind you of the Feast of Unleavened Bread again. Again, this is Exodus 13, starting in verse 2 through 9. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by the strong hand of the Lord. You want to circle that. that. That shows up like five times in these short verses. By the strong hand of the Lord. This is who redeemed you. This was who exodus you out of Egypt. By the strong hand of the Lord, He brought you out from this place. But no leavened bread shall be eaten. Again, this is something that Moses just told the people of Israel the day before. In, in Exodus chapter 12, 14 through 20. That they're to celebrate this feast of unleavened bread. And what this was is that you didn't eat any leavened bread for seven straight days for this week as you celebrated Passover. You took the leaven and you got it out of your house. And not only did you get it out of your house, but you got it out of the territory of Israel. Verse 7 says, 
And Rich kind of unpacked this a little bit last week, and he said that what this unleavened bread represented was like the the children of Israel had to leave quickly. They had to get out of Dodge quickly. There was no time to put yeast in the bread to make it fluffy and nice and actually taste good, right? It was time to get out of Dodge. And so they, they just took out all of the leaven. But here's the thing. Again, that's the Old Testament, Old Covenant. Paul, Paul gives us a better definition, a fuller definition of what this event was all about. You see, as we come to the New Testament, leaven in the Bible primarily symbolizes what? Sin. Sin. In Galatians 5.9, it says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do we have any bread makers in here? Who makes bread? I, 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 mean, I should have you come up here and teach us about bread and leaven and what happens with all that, right? I'm no expert, so let me just, this is what I understand. And you see the correlation of sin and leaven or yeast in bread. When you introduce leaven or yeast into the ingredients that makes bread, what happens is, is the, the, the leaven begins to work its way through the whole batch of dough. And it catalyzes this process called fermentation. And then that, that helps the bread kind of puff up and rise, right? But something else also happens. What also start happens is that the, the bread also begins to decay. And we all know that leavened bread doesn't last long before mold starts to set in. So this is the primary definition when we talk about leaven and unleaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And now what Paul does is he gives us, he gives us really his interpretation, his commentary on the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and how we, how it affects the church today. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul is going to give us his commentary on Exodus 13. What we're talking about, we're going to hear the Apostle Paul, the greatest Bible teacher of the history of the world, give us his interpretation and his application for us as Christians on the Passover and on leavened bread. And it is gold. It is money. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're kind of familiar with this passage. The Corinthian church. We know the Corinthian church wasn't a healthy church, was it? They had some issues. In fact, a lot of the Corinthians churches would, would remind us of the American church today. And there could be a, a correlation. This is what he says in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is some sexual immorality among you of even the kind that is not tolerated among the pagans or those outside the church. For a man has his father's wife. And it says, verse 2, that you are arrogant about this. There's a sexual sin that not even the pagans do, not even the Gentiles do, that's happening in the church, and they're not even embarrassed about it. In fact, they're celebrating it. It's crazy. And Paul says, you're arrogant about it. You're boasting it. Ought you not rather mourn? It should make your heart hurt and weep that this has infected the church. Let him who has done this be removed among you. And he talks about church discipline in verses 3 through 5. Now look at verse 6. And here's where he brings in the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened. This is how we apply the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Right here. This is how we apply it. We apply it to fight our sin. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Here's a question he asks. He asks a question to the Corinthians and to us. Do you not know? Do you not know that a what? A little leaven. A little sin leavens the whole lump. A little sin affects the whole lump, affects the whole body. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven 
that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is so good. This, 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 is, this is just pure gold right here. Not, not that the sin in the church, that's, that's bad, that's terrible. But how, we, how Paul tells us to use the Passover and other piece of unleavened bread to combat this sin. To gives us the cure, gives us the remedy, gives us the application on how we are to fight sin. Whether it's sexual sin or some other sin. This is the, this is the cure. This is how we fight it. This is how Paul says we confront sin with Christ and Him as our Passover lamb. Now again, this is, he's looking at Exodus chapter 13, and this is what he says. These two events are, are closely related. First, the Passover feast and the unleavened. They're, in, they're intimately connected. The Passover meal was to commemorate what? As, you, as Rich talked about last year. He hammered it. It was about the lamb. He was our what? He was our sacrificial lamb. He was our substitute, right? Right? The lamb was our substitute. He was the one and only him that could save Israel and the first and the people on there from the from death, from the death angel. The lamb spared them from death. And just as the lamb spared Israel from death in the Old Testament, it is the lamb that spares death for us in the New Testament. Again, John 1, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is Jesus. And then after the Passover, we they immediately go and celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is just a week-long period of no leaven. And this represents now in the New Testament that the whole house was the symbol to be swept clean to get sin out of your house. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread portrays the kind of holiness that Christians should be walking in. The ability to live holy lives. And the reason why we can do this, the reason why we can get rid of sin, is not in our own effort, but it's because of what? Because of the Passover lamb. Paul reminds the Corinthian church, Paul reminds Christians that because Christ has been sacrificed, His blood covers us, cleanses us, and in God's eyes we are now seen as holy. We are seen as a new lump without sin. And what Paul is saying, he takes these events of Exodus 13 and applies them to the church today. How you battle sin is you walk in your true identity. That's where the battle of sin starts. It doesn't start with trying harder and doing better. It starts with understanding who you are in Christ. What has happened at the Passover meal? How God has loved you so much that He sent a substitute, His Son, to cleanse you from your sin. It begins with walk, understanding your true identity and then you can walk in sincerity and truth. Are you guys grasping this? Are you seeing how awesome this is? Paul's saying, like, this doesn't make sense to the Corinthian church. You're a new lump. You shouldn't be walking in this sexual sin. It's like a, it's like a firefighter. It's like the job of the firefighters to go fight fires, right? That's his job. But what Paul is saying is like, the firefighter is going out and setting fires. He goes, that's not, that's not the identity of a firefighter. A firefighter doesn't start fires. A firefighter what? Puts out fires. And this is what Paul is leading us to. This is incredible. This is how we fight sin. We fight sin by first looking at who we are in Christ. The Passover. And then that gives us the ability to then celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread to get sin out of our lives. And as in all of Paul's writings, the order 
you guys will hear this a lot from our church over the years, is the indicative what is true, what happens to us in Christ always informs the imperatives or then the commands. The indicative is the Passover lamb. Christ sent his son to live and to die on the cross and be raised again for us. We didn't do anything to earn our salvation. He did that for us. We received that. That's the indicative. That's what happened to us. And now we have the imperative comes. The imperative is now we can worship through unliving bread and we can walk in holiness. This is beautiful. Paul is giving us the interpretation. He's saying, hey, we don't do house cleaning so that Jesus can come and live with us. No, Jesus comes in, does our house cleaning, and then helps us live a holy life. This is what's happening in Exodus 13 for the Christian. For us. This is how we fight sin. Paul gives us a clear battle. So are you fighting sin right now? Is there a sin that you're trying to fight that you just can't get out? The problem could be, which happens in all of us, is we try to do it in our own strength and our own power, and we put up all these rules and regulations, right? But we forget to begin at the beginning, at the foundation, and that is understanding who you are in Christ. That's where you begin. And then that gives you the ability to live out who you are in Christ. What a great truth. Verse, uh, our third point, that leads us to a third point. Let us remind you of the firstborn again, Exodus 13. We'll hit chapter uh, verse 1, and then we'll jump down to verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, Concentrate, dedicate to me all your firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among your people of Israel, both men of beasts is mine. Now jump down to verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first opens of the womb. And then he highlights in the next couple of verses, it begins with animals and children, in particular male children. He says, this is the thing that you're going to implement when you get to the promised land, when you get to the land of the Canaanites. You're going to, you're going to dedicate your firstborn to me. You're going to concentrate your firstborn to me. And this makes sense to us, right? And again, see the patterns of the indicative and the imperative. This makes sense for us to do this. It makes sense for Israel to do this because if you have been redeemed by the strong arm of the Lord, you are slave and God has exodus you out here. He's now redeemed you. The, the next natural reaction is to what? It's to worship. It's to worship and to, to thank the Lord for doing that. And so we see that these people have been delivered. They've been exodus by the strong arm of the Lord. And again, this is um, repeat, I think, five times in, 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 in 13. This is the indicative. This is what happened. We've been redeemed by Him. And now the imperative is now we honor and worship the Lord by consecrating our firstborn to Him. But when we come to the New Testament, again, this is the Old Covenant, but when we come to the New Testament, we live under the New Covenant. And this idea of firstborns, we, we talk about it in the idea of first fruits. First fruits. But we kind of skew our, our understanding. I think there's been some mis maybe some misguidance a little bit on the teaching of giving of your first fruits because we usually hear about give uh, the first fruits through giving, right? That's usually how we understand first fruits. If you're going to give the Lord your first fruits. But in the New Testament, it's not specifically talking about giving. Although that's good. There, there, there's a command that says that we are to give on the first day of the first week in 1 Corinthians. So we are to give. We are to give joyfully um, uh, our, our money uh, to the Lord. We are to do that, but the first fruits in the New Testament is way bigger than just that little narrow thing of giving. In James, it says this 
of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we are the, Jesus was the firstfruits of the resurrection. So when we're talking about firstfruits in the new covenant, it's talking about your whole life. You give not only just a little bit of your money, you give your whole life to the Lord. Your whole life. We give the Lord not only our treasures, but also our times and our talents. This was, again, the Lord, as you're studying this, as I was studying this week, He just gave me the perfect example of what this looks like. What does it look like for us as New Covenant, New Testament believers to give our first fruits of the Lord? We give our lives to the Lord. Uh, my daughter, uh, Madison, we had a, a kind of a Zoom recruiting call. So it was me and my daughter um, and my wife on this call with these coach across the country. And this is not a Christian university. She's getting recruited for lacrosse. This is not a Christian university. And they were going over their, you know, their, their spiel, right? This is their mission. This is their values. This is what they want to, you know, want to accomplish. And as they were going through it, you, you, we, I saw these words of love, sacrifice, servanthood, service. And then one really just stuck out to me. It said that we want to be a team of grace. We want to be a team of grace. Now, I've been in sports, you know, basically my whole life, like 40 plus years. It's been incredible. And I've never seen it said that clearly from a secular university and coach. And so I asked the coach, you know, she didn't have any questions. I said, yeah, I got a question. What do you mean by we want to be a team of grace? And she knew I was a pastor and she goes, well, it's exactly what you think it means, right? I was like, well, okay. <laughs> I know what it means, so not what I think it means, but what do you, you mean? And, and she didn't do it in a, in a snarky way. She did it in a very encouraging way. And she said, hey, she, she went on to say, she goes, you're sending me your daughter, and it's my job. I have a position to not only make her the, 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 be, the best lacrosse player that she can be, but also the best Christian she can be. She goes, that's why we have it there. Because grace is one of the greatest characteristics of the Christian life. And for those that I'm recruiting that aren't Christian, and we're a team of grace, and, and our team, and it begins with me, and I'm, and I'm walking in grace, and I'm showing these girls grace, it's going to become attractive to them, and they're going to want to check out Christianity. This is a perfect example of what it looks like to give your life as the first fruits of the Lord. Wherever you are at in your life. When you come to Jesus, 1 Corinthians says that as you come, you live out your faith in the manner in which you call it. Most people, in fact, this is a great thing, only a very small portion of people go into full-time ministry. Their first fruits, like as me, is you go into a ministry. You become a, a pastor or a missionary, etc. The majority of you will give your first fruits in the way you have been called. You have been gifted and shaped and molded by God to go into the world and be His ambassadors. So when it talks about giving your first fruits in the New Testament under the New Covenant, it's talking about wherever you are planted in your life, as a husband, as a wife, as a friend, whatever your vocation is, you take Jesus to that vocation and you live it out. You give your life, you give your first fruits, all of it, your time, your talent, your treasure, and those around you. You pour yourself out to them. 
So if you're a teacher here, your first fruits is to give as a teacher. Engineer, physical therapist, nurse, realtor, insurance agent, contractor, friend, mom, dad, sister, brother, etc. How we give our first fruits is we give our whole lives. We give our whole lives. First Corinthians 6 says this, you were bought with a price, therefore what? Glorify your lives in your body. This is what it means to give our first fruits in the New Testament. And the Old Covenant is again pointing us to the New Testament. And this leads us to finally our fourth point. Let, let us be reminded of the presence of the Lord. Let's be reminded of the presence of the Lord. Exodus chapter 13, 17 through verse 22. We see in verse 17, Pharaoh lets his people go. Can you imagine being that, that, that group of people? The people are enslaved over 400 years and, and you're the one where Pharaoh says, go, get out of here, move on. Can you imagine the anticipation, the excitement, the joy, but also maybe the, the nervousness of that? But it says that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, or, or you might say, although that was quicker. The Lord didn't take them on the quickest route. Did you guys, I mean, did you catch that? The Lord didn't take them on the quickest route, the easiest route, the most direct route to the promised land. The most direct route would have been this way of the Philistines, also known as the Via Maris, the, the way of the sea. It would have took, even with two to three million people, it would have took about two weeks for them to get to the promised land. But the Lord didn't lead them there. He had to do some work. He gives the reason. He says this, For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. On, those, on this way, there would have been like military outposts that would have been on this way, just looking for a fight. And the Lord knows Israel, even though it says in verse 18, But God led the people around the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and all the people of Israel went out of the land equipped for battle. Maybe a better translation would be like, they went out in formation. They went out in formation. God knew that if they would have went this land of the Philistines, they would have got whacked. And people would have been like, what, you just, you just led us out here to die? So they would want to go back to Egypt. Because they weren't great warriors. They were great brick makers. That's what they were good at, right? God did everything for them. Now, the Lord could have just white face clean, you know, a, a clear path for them to go, but he wanted to teach them something. Israel still need to learn dependence and trust on their Lord. So he led them not the quickest way, not the easiest way. He wanted them to grow in their dependence and trust in Yahweh. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed any detours in your own life? Like you saw you saw a clear path for your life and you're like, okay, a, B, C, D, and then I'm going to be here. I want to be here when I want to get here. And here, and here's the plan on how I'm going to go. How many of you, you know, that's been perfect every time. How many of you have got some detours in your life? Go ahead and raise your hand. I mean, we probably raise our hands, our fingers, our toes, everything, right? Because life doesn't necessarily go as we plan. The, the Scripture says in Proverbs, a man plans his ways, but what? The Lord directs his steps. That's like my, my theme verse for my life. And we see the same here. The Lord doesn't always take us the easiest in the quickest way. Sometimes He takes us the long way around. And this is just God in His goodness. What He does for Israel and what He does for us. This is God's loving kindness, His sovereign hand leading us sometimes into places where the, the odds see insurmountable. It seems like a dead end, right? 
But we know that in Christ is for a purpose. James and Peter and all other places tell us that this is a reason. There's a purpose behind God leading and directing us. And the main purpose is He's trying to grow our faith and dependence on Him and not in our own abilities. He wants to grow our humility. He wants to grow us in compassion. Rhea and I get the opportunity to do assessments. And this one time we were assessing this couple, um, young couple, and um, they had one, one child. But before that, they had, uh, they had a miscarriage. And the, and the child, their, their first child was actually seven months old and, 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 and had a miscarriage and they gave birth to a stillborn baby. And they, they held the baby, uh, both him and, and his wife. And it was a traumatic, traumatic time, a devastating time, as you can imagine. Everything seemed hopeless. This was a, a devastating detour on, on their life, right? Nine months, they're, they're waiting for this child and it's cut short seven months and they were devastated. And, and, and the lady said, as she looked back, she said she saw God's goodness in this devastating time. And it, and it, and it helped her um, understand the Gospel even more. Because she said this, she goes, I, I know how much I love that child. And the pain it felt to, 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 to hold that seven-month baby that was lifeless, that was dead, that wasn't there. She understood that, that pain because how much love she had for that child. And she said, it made me understand the Gospel more because Christ, I mean, because God gave up His Son willfully to die for us. He, he, he calculated the pain, the purest pain, of giving up someone innocent for your enemies. And how much that showed her the love of God for her. So that's the first thing it did. It really helped her understand the Gospel more. The second thing it did, it helped her minister to others better that were in the same situation as her. Those that have had a, a, a miscarriage. It's a devastating time. We believe that life begins at conception. And that child in the womb is a beautiful child. Created and knitted by God. And that's a devastating time when a child is lost. We mourn that loss. She goes, but it made me, it helped me give the ability to minister to those ladies in that time of need. It strengthened her. It helped her grow in compassion. It helped her grow in her wisdom. Sometimes the Lord leads us on detours because He's doing something in you and in me. So if you're on a detour right now and you feel like you're in the back alley road going somewhere, take heart that the Lord is doing something in your heart and He's going to use you in the future for it. It's for your good. Even though we might not understand it, it's for your good. As I look at my life and, and all the different back alley roads and detours and U-turns that we had to take, it's always been for my good. For my family's good. I can say that with it unequivocally. So we see this happen. We see in verse 19 and 20 this, this weird little section of Scripture about G, uh, Joseph and his bones. And it's really a fulfillment of Genesis 50, 25. Basically, the, the gist of it is this. As we remember, Joseph went to the second in command in Egypt, was a great, uh, great leader of Egypt. But by the time they got to this point, 400 plus years later, they forgot about what Joseph and Joseph said, don't leave my bones in Egypt, man. I want, I want to be in the promised land with you, so, so make sure you swear you take my bones, right? 
So this is a 400-year promise that is kept, which is awesome. That's what that is all about. It's about fulfillment Genesis chapter 50. And then we see Moses close out Exodus chapter 13 by the presence of Yahweh, the presence of the Lord, by this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night. This is what's called a, a physical manifestation of the Lord's presence known as a theophany. We've already seen one, right? When, when, we, when we see the first one in Exodus, when was it? Was that? Burning bush. Exodus chapter 3. That's the first one, right? The burning bush with Moses. But that was specifically just to Moses. Now the Lord is showing Himself physically, tangibly, through this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire to the whole nation of Israel. There's two to three million people. One guy called this the Israel's GPS as they were leading them through the desert. God's positioning system. GPS. It's awesome. He was leading and guiding and directing them on this journey. God was not just going to, as soon as Pharaoh let him go, he wasn't going to leave him. Say, okay, you guys are on your own. You guys figure it out. No, God was with them. He was with them on this journey. And not only is he with them on like the, the big parts of this journey, like the major events of this journey, like leading two to three million people. That's kind of a big job, leading two to three million people, right? But also in the small, minor, in the details. Just think about this. Think about who, who has ever lived in a desert or been in a desert? Tucson, Arizona, New Mexico, deserts, right? Um, when the sun is, is out, it gets pretty hot, right? So just think about the little details. These guys are going to spend 40 years in the desert in Sinai, which is like barren. It's like even worse than Tucson. It's barren. The sun is just going to be beating down on you. And even in the little details, not only is a, this pillar of cloud during the day guiding them, but it's probably so massive that you know two to three million people can see it that it's blocking the sun's rays and giving them shadow. A shadow is going over the people of Israel. Because the Lord knows what it feels like to be beaten down by the sun for 40 plus years. And I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. And when you drive into like a parking lot, like you're at a, a sporting event or something, do you know where everyone is looking to park in the middle of the day? Under some shade, right? So, so you see people that will walk like a mile because there's a little bit of a shade covering their car, right? And they'll walk a mile. So you see all these cars parked, you know, way back from the place you're going because they want to be comforted by some shade because it sucks getting into a car that's been beaten down by the sun in Tucson, Arizona, um, when there's no, there's no relief. But not only that, at the night, think about how the pillar of fire at night in the desert, when that big ball goes down, when that sun goes down, it gets cold in the desert. It gets chilly. And so at night, the Lord's presence is this big pillar of fire. The fire does what? It puts out heat. It keeps two to three million people warm. It keeps them warm in the evening time. They didn't have heaters back then. So we see God just in the little details. Maybe there's some kids afraid of the dark. So this would be like a little nightlight, you know, for the, for the children of Israel in the dark, right? And maybe at night, even, even dimmed a little bit so that the people. So even in the detail, God is there. I love what one said this. One said this, we Christians are always in the presence of God. This is what I was reminded of so, 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 so much this week. We Christians are always in the presence of God. In the major details and the minor details, there is never a non-sacred moment in your life. Because the Lord is always with you. His presence never diminishes. Our awareness of His presence may falter, but the reality of His presence, it never changes. That's an incredible thought for us. It's an incredible thought for us. 
There's never a non-sacred moment in our lives because the Lord is always with us. Now for the Old Testament, it was this pillar of fire, the GPS, right? The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire was the thing that guides that, that draw the Lord's presence. For us in the New Testament, it's something even more intimate. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go away. I'm going to ascend to the Father. And He's going to what? He's going to send us His Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the third God, member of the Godhead. His Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell us. He's going to live inside of us. Each one of us in Christ are, have the Spirit of God leading, guide, and direct us. And when He comes in, He's going to come in with power. He's going to lead, guide, and direct us. And now He's going to give us the power to be His witnesses. That's why there's never a non-sacred moment in our lives. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us. He leads us. He guides us. He directs us. He is always with us. The Holy Spirit is our GPS, is our God's positioning system for life. And there's a lot we can unpack there, but we'll just leave it there. Just know that we as Christians are always in the presence of God and there is never a non-sacred moment. His presence never diminishes even though our awareness of His presence may falter, but the reality of His presence never changes. Exodus 13 is a great chapter for us. It connects us with our ancestors of those in the Old Testament, but we live in the New Testament. And we see how the Lord leads and guides and directs us. And so let's be a people that are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let's be a people that love and build our lives on the Passover lamb. And let us be a people that are then sent out as ambassadors, empowered by God to live holy lives for Jesus, for His glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this message. A message that You gave the nation of Israel, two to three million people and others, Egyptians and pagans. A message You gave them so they may know You better. They may be changed from the inward parts of their heart to then lead to action to be Your ambassadors. What You did in their hearts, You do in our hearts. The Lord never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You have just given us more information and greater clarity in the revelation because we see it through the lens of Christ and His life, death, and resurrection informed and empowered by His Holy Spirit. And we do this in community. So we may, may we be people that love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. And go and make disciples of all nations for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.